Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for being here. Wonderful to see everyone, and especially with Hanukkah coming in tonight and a perfect theme, although it's not a Hanukkah class. Um, finding light within darkness, spreading light within darkness is um, is so crucial all the time. And we can certainly use light at a time like, like now. And we're thrilled to uh, be learning again with Melanie Grunwald, second of three uh, classes together, and um, and to be partnering with um, our great partners, Bethel. And with that, I'm going to pass it over um, to my colleague, Rabbi Nitan Stein-Kokin, to introduce our scholar today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, welcome. Everyone, Chagorim uh, Sameach, Happy Hanukkah. Um, already this morning in Talmud, we discussed how can we find that miracle and that light in our days. So um, we're very excited to have you, to have Natalie Grunwald here. Grunwald, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I'm a German speaker. So you are so so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this shiur at this time, this lesson at this time with such a topic. Um, just a little bit of your background. Melanie is the executive director of Kabbalah Experience and brings over 25 years of nonprofit leadership and community organizing to her position. Engaged with senior citizens, families, college students, and teens, Melanie has extensive professional experience with communal leadership and informal Jewish education. She's, organ she's energized by building relationships, understanding people's needs, and finding ways to connect them to one another. She loves the balance of organizational leadership and teaching, which she engages on a daily basis at Kabbalah Experience. She earned her BS in psychology from Binghamton University and a master's in social work and a certificate in Jewish communal service from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. Melanie has pursued additional Judaic and spiritual studies at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, the Conservative Yeshiva, and most recently Kabbalah Experience. She's married to Rabbi Solomon Grunwald, Associate Rabbi at Hebrew Educational Alliance, and is a mom of three children, Kobe, Sichono Livracha, Hannah, and Micah. Melanie, please bring us the light. <laughs> thank you. And thank you to Rabbi Shmuley and Alex and your congregation, Beth L, and Rabbi Nitzan, um, for welcoming and hosting us today. So thank you all for being here. It's wonderful. I love connecting with Valley Beit Midrash. I have to say, um, I was watching some videos from previous lectures uh, to prepare for today, just to say, you know, I can teach, but what's everybody else doing? And it's just really the breadth and depth of knowledge and experience and energy that's presented in your community um, is just wonderful. So thank you um, for bringing VBM to, to all of us. And I'm really honored to be part of it. Uh, it's great to have some friends here, a cousin and some folks I don't know. So thank you all for joining today. 
Um, our topic is finding light and darkness. And whether it's this time of year, it's December and it's dark, um, or it's the way we're experiencing the brokenness of the world right now, or it's just life sometimes feels a little bit broken. Um, it's always good to have the opportunity to be reminded about what does Jewish tradition say about finding light and darkness and how can we um, how can we find some meaning in this time? So when I teach, I like to start from the very beginning. Um, where do we even hear about light and darkness in Jewish texts, in Torah text? And the way I like to teach is to invite you to join us um, by sharing the reading. Um, so Wendy Rossoff, would you be kind enough to read the English here about with these two sources from the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water. God called the light day and called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning a first day. Thank you. Okay. So where do we start in creation? What's what's from the beginning of the text? What are we starting with? What's our, nothing nothingness chaos right and we start with darkness right we start with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from god sweeping over the water so apparently we have darkness and we have water right and then we move forward just a few verses and what does god call the light day and the darkness is night exactly right so we have we start with the darkness and from the darkness comes the light and the daytime. And then from that separation, we see, so now the light is day, the darkness is night, there's evening and there's morning, first day. How did you celebrate time? How do we mark time? Right, we begin with darkness, right? Why do we begin with darkness and go into light? Why don't we start with the bokeh and then the evening? Because the sun is evening instead of day. Right. But how do we experience time differently tonight when the sun sets, we're going to be lighting our menorah, our Hanukkah. Why? We begin with darkness because we're a lunar calendar. Okay. That's part of it. And how else do you just even viscerally experience time when you're starting a holiday or a festival at nighttime with darkness? We light candles. Right. And what is that? experience like in darkness when we start lighting candles it brings a sense of holiness and um like it's something different like it's a complete separation from the previous time you go into the regular day and all of a sudden it's shabbat and you light the candles and it's just a different feeling it's it's takes you into another realm right and we're experiencing day we're experiencing the busyness of our day and our life, and then the sun sets, it's darkness, it could be scary. If there's a beautiful midrash of teaching about um, Adam and Eve on the first night that they experienced darkness and they thought it was the end of the world and then the sun set and then the sun rose and they said, oh, so this is the order of the world, right? First we have darkness and then we'll have light, right? And when we're engaged, not only in experiencing the cycle of time, but we're lighting candles, we're bringing light to the darkness, it also gives us some kind of connection to control, to bring light into what might otherwise seem dark and unmanageable for us. Right. So our next source is from Howard Schwartz. He's an amazing storyteller. Um, and this is how he's explaining darkness and light. Uh, Rebecca, would you be able to read that, please? At the beginning of time, God's presence filled the universe. When God decided to bring this world into being, 
to make room for creation, they first drew in their breath, contracting themselves. From that contraction, darkness was created. And when God said, let there be light, as says in Genesis 1-3, the light that came into being filled the darkness, and ten holy vessels came forth, each filled with primordial light. In this way, God sent forth those ten vessels, like a fleet of ships, each carrying its cargo of light. Had they all arrived intact, the world would have been perfect. But the vessels were too fragile to contain such a powerful divine light. They broke open, split asunder, and all the holy sparks were scattered like sand, like seeds, like stars. Thank you. So Howard Schwartz is referencing here the story of the, the concept of creation, the process of creation through the lens of Luriana Kabbalah. So according to Isaac Luria, at the beginning of the time, if and what the rabbi struggled with, if God was everywhere and everything, how did the infinite create space for the finite to exist? So what he's saying here is God's presence filled the universe. And when God decided to bring this world into being, to make room for creation, he withdrew, right? He contracted God, God create, contracted God's self and said, let there be light. And the light came to fill the darkness and 10 holy vessels came forth. Right? So picture, I always picture Chihuly glass bulbs, right? Or bubbles that these holy vessels came forth, forth which references Sphirot, the tree of life. And they were each traveling, carrying the light energy that was a source of creation, the Ain Sof, that without end is contained in each of these vessels, but the energy was so intense, so intense, the vessels were too fragile and they shattered. They couldn't handle that powerful divine light anymore. And that's what we call the Shevi Ratzaklalim, the shattering of the vessels. And our job in this world, you might be familiar with the term Tikkun Olam, right? Tikkun Olam, repairing the world. Our job is to pick up these shards of light and put it back together again. So these holy sparks were scattered like sand, like the seeds, like the stars. So how is Howard Schwartz here bringing us back to Genesis from God saying, let there be light? From So there was darkness, and then he said, let there be light, and the light filled the darkness. Then what happened according to Schwartz, Howard Schwartz? The way it gets disseminated into the world is kind of like not direct, but very indirect. Yeah, right. he's filling these vessels and then they shatter right and then it's it's out there right everything's connected what else are you all noticing about that does anything else jump out at you judy they were contained and after the shattering they were uncontained it also required god to separate them at that point mm. right so how do you see that playing out in our world today well in judaism we're called to draw distinctions so that's that's us imitating God by separating the light from the darkness. Beautiful. Right. I mean, that's what the Havdalah ceremony is about at the end of the Sabbath, right? The idea of we light the candle again, when it gets dark, we light the candle and we're separating the holy from everything else, right? It's the light becomes a source of separation. Nice connection. So here's another teaching from the Zohar. Uh, Marty, would you read this one for me, please? There's no greater light than the light which emerges out of the greatest darkness. Right. So again, the idea of is the light more apparent when we're seeing it from a dark place? How do we experience light from light versus light from darkness? What? How does that show up for you? We can't have one without the other. Right. 
Right? We wouldn't have shadows, right? If we didn't have light and darkness, they're intertwined. Everything is connected. This is a beautiful reading from um, Roger Kamenetz about the tablets, the Ten Commandments. But if you remember the story, Moshe, Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai. He got the Ten Commandments. He came down. The, the, the Israelites had built the golden calf, right? And then he threw them on the ground and they were shattered. But even though they were shattered, the, the broken pieces of the tablets were carried in the ark across the desert. They were carried in the, in the, in the ark to make it to Israel. So Wendy Davis, would you read this poem for me, please? The broken tablets were also carried in an ark insofar as they represented everything shattered, everything lost. They were the law of broken things, the leaf torn from the stem in a storm, a cheek touched in fondness once, but now the name forgot. How they must have rumbled, clattered on the way, even carried so carefully through the wasteland. How they must have rattled around until the pieces broken into pieces, the edges softened, crumbling, dust collected at the bottom of the ark, ghosts of old letters, old laws. Insofar as a law broken is still remembered, these laws were obeyed. And insofar as memory preserves the patterns of broken things, these bits of stone were preserved through many journeys and ruined days, even, they say, into the promised land. And how many broken things, right? Whether it's items or memories or hearts or experiences, but do we carry with us in the arc of our body? I find this metaphor really interesting. Um, I'd love to hear, what do you think? What What is evoked for you while you're reading this or seeing this poem? I feel like if taking sort of all three parts together, this idea that you sort of have to break to experience illumination within yourself that you can then spread further, like the vessel's sort of had to break. Otherwise they wouldn't have dispersed the light in the necessary manner. Um, and just this idea that you, unless you've experienced some kind of brokenness, you don't, you can't see what you need to understand to then spread the light. Wow. Right. And we don't know our wholeness until we experience brokenness. Yeah. But perhaps like the darkness comes before the light, does the brokenness come before the wholeness? I yeah. like the about the softening of the edges and kind of like the, the the sand on the bottom. But I also like the part about so that you know they they're not quite as harsh and rough as when originally formed. But um, I also like that um, we still preserve them and we still carry them and we still honor them almost. You know, hold them and it's okay for them to be there. So that's like, we don't throw them away. Just because they're broken. They're important to have. Right. And in Kabbalah, we teach, right? The past exists. The past is always going to inform our present. We just don't want to get stuck in it. Right. So when we're bringing the broken pieces of the past along, right? The edges might soften. The dust might settle. The pain, the edges of that might settle a little bit, right? But it's always going to be carried with us. So far as a memory preserves a pattern of broken things, these bits of stones were preserved. In what ways does that play out in our lives today? I think it's fam like family trauma, but also family good times. It just, um, I read this and I just think of my generations and generations of um, ancestors who 
lived in the Pale Settlement in Poland, um, all dreaming of, of going to the land of Israel. Mm. Um, and I was the one who had the fortune, you know, lived long enough when Israel was, was happened, but it's all our, all our memories, all the memories of the pogroms, the Holocaust, also of, of Shabbatot and Chagim, um, that, that's how I see it. It's just an unbroken chain of broken and unbroken moments in life. Mm -hmm. I like that image of a chain. Thank you. So here we think about our brokenness, right? I have a couple of things in my house that are broken. One is a piece of pottery that a friend gave me. I'm just thinking maybe I should glue it back together or I don't know. <laughs> like, um, and over Thanksgiving, another dish was broken. So now I have a pile of my broken dishes, right? But whenever I take out my dishes to serve, right, I don't want to put out the bowl with the chips in it, right? I want to put out my whole and my beautiful pieces. But it's really interesting to see here what what is our experience of brokenness and wholeness? Um, so Judy, would you read this piece from the Midrash, please? When a man uses a broken vessel he is ashamed of, but not so God. He is ashamed of it, but not so God. All the instruments of his service are broken vessels, as it is said. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, or who heals the brokenhearted. So what's the teaching here from the Midrash? God's not embarrassed by our brokenness. God is close to us because we are broken. And we're all broken. It right? just, it makes me think of all the, the, all the provisions about priests and sacrifices, where if anything has even the slightest blemish, a, a, a priest with a, with a crushed testicle can't, can't offer um, a sacrifice. This runs contrary to that. So how would you how would you find some balance in that? I would suggest that these things um, hint at God being God being more pleased by the sacrifices coming from the broken priest than from the unbothered priest. If the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, right? We're re not rewarded for being full of hubris, right? Full of pride. We're rewarded for humility and for experiencing life, right? We can't sit in the whole in the holy of holies and be protected all the time, right? When we go out and we live our lives, that's when we have friction. That's when we have dissonance. That's when we get the chips in our nails and our the thing about the dirt under our nails from you know from gardening. If if, also, if it, it, it's yeah, excuse me. It seems to me that younger people who feel that they are immortal and nothing bad will happen and all of those good things are not as open to God experiences as those of us who are older and who who are willing to overlook some of the imperfections of the world or who are who are imperfect themselves and don't expect to be perfect that mm. we are more open to to God and to religion Maybe. I mean, at least the people who are showing up here, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, that we do, the more we experience life, the more we recognize how little control we actually have, right? That um, there is beauty in the brokenness. Can I make a comment? Yeah, Can I make please. a comment on that? Hi, this is Robin Steinecker. I don't have my camera on and I probably could. 
Um, I'm actually a pediatrician and deal with a lot of these young kids. And I think a lot of this is what they portray as, as what is perfect and what they are inexperienced in and what they don't understand what it would be like if they didn't look perfect to everyone. So it's experience, it's social media, it's pressure from parents. There's a lot of things that go into that, of course, experience, but I feel like the people think that they should be perfect and unbroken when that's really not healthy. Like you really can't move forward until you admit that you are, that there's things that need to be fixed. Beautiful. Thank you. Are you at a place that you could read our next piece? Robin? Oh, yes. Although I don't have to my, um, my camera here. Hold on. Yes, I can. I, I will. There we go. Okay. Um, a man of flesh and blood, if he has a vessel, so long as the vessel is whole, he is happy with it. But not so the Holy One, blessed, blessed be he. So long as the vessel is whole, he does not wish to see it. Broken, he wishes it. And what is the favorite vessel of the Holy One? Blessed be he, the heart of man. If the Holy One sees proud heart, he does not wish it. As it is said, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Broken, he said, this is mine. As it is said, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. Thank you. All right. So same time around the third century. All right. So what's the connection here between the man using a broken vessel and then the metaphor of a man, um, of a human, right? Saying, God's saying, if the vessel is whole, he doesn't wish to see it. He, God wants to see the vessel broken. His favorite vessel is the broken one. Why Can I just that? ask, what, yeah. the, what does it mean by proud? Like, what's the Hebrew used word that, that would be there? Is it, does it mean arrogant? Does it mean um, um, too self-concerned? What, what does pride actually mean in this, yeah. um, this sentence? That's a good question. I'll look it up on Safaria while we are chatting about that. I'll reference the link. If you're not familiar with Safaria, I encourage you to learn about it. <laughs> and we could look up the Hebrew and um, find out exactly what they're saying here. Proverbs 1, oh, 16, 5. How does it read to you? Like if you were the translator, how would you understand it? Oh, here it says haughty. Avat Adonai kol gevala lev geva. So every haughty person is the word that they're using here. Thanks. Yeah. So it's not really pride. It's um, it's the opposite of humility. Like it's a complete lack of humility. It's being overconfident um, in mm. oneself. Okay. Which which is a problem. One could see that uh, Hashem wouldn't wouldn't like that. Um. As far as Hashem preferring more, those with broken heart, I don't know. Are we always to be Jewish is to have a broken heart? Um, especially now, my God, we're like one body with one big broken heart. I don't know. I I, I can't answer that. No. Maybe it's preferable if it said humility. I could understand. But to be like beyond humility, but actually broken, that's a pretty awful place to be. It is true, right? Especially now we feel that with our brothers and sisters in Israel. Um, 
you know, you see one child taken hostage and you feel like it's part of your own family. And why, what's, what's the thread that we're seeing here between these two readings? Well, I think that um, the second paragraph is, the uh, Midrash is saying like, God really wants to be doing tikkun olam. Hmm. And that's what he wants us to be doing. And if we are haughty in terms of, uh, we think we are not broken in any way, we don't have to fix ourselves in any way, then God doesn't like that. And so that's, that's how I, that's, that's how I hear the second paragraph. And sort of the, uh, the first one in a way is uh, man's pride in a way, being ashamed of using a broken vessel. Right, we all have work to do, right? right? So here's a another poem. Um, this is from Rashani. Um, I forget where I, I actually found it in this book by Estelle uh, Frankel um, that I often reference about sacred therapy. It's amazing. This was part of a meditation about light and darkness, and the idea that we're all we all experience this brokenness. Um, if someone who's not on video but wants to help read i'm happy to um call on you i just can't tell if in what ways you're able to show up at the moment there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable there is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength there is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss. Out of, out, out, of the, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside, which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. All right, so how does this, what are we learning here about the brokenness and the wholeness? It's, it's a growth cycle. In what way? Well, I don't know which is first, the brokenness or the... <laughs> I, I think the brokenness precedes the blooming or the growing of the unbrokenness that that having your heart broken or having something bad happen to you or to someone you care about um, is an opportunity, although you may not see it as such when it's happening but it's an opportunity to grow in a new way. Right. How much we can learn from retrospect right? from the rear view mirror. Yeah. Except you have to get far enough away from it that you're not devastated by it. Right. Right. Or also recognizing that when we're most broken, that that's when we have the opportunity for healing. You know, there's the teaching that says, you know, even when an arm, when we have a broken arm, right, where it heals, where the scar forms is actually stronger than where it was, how it was before. The scar makes the bone stronger. Yeah. There's that Japanese art as well of, of broken pottery. Yeah. They seal back together with gold, right? And it's more valuable because it's been broken um, because it's had the opportunity to heal and be healed. Right. So how does that, ex- how does that tie back to our conversation about these vessels from the third century? It's no different than our hearts. Yeah, we're all going to have some brokenness. And perhaps the darkness comes before the light, right? Be- perhaps we have to be broken before we can heal. You know, thinking about planting a simple seed, it has to disintegrate. 
before the green comes out, before the tree emerges and the leaves and the apples form, right? Every, we all have to break down a little bit before we can be stronger and wholer and more complete. But it's out of the darkness we were sanctioned into being, right? Out of the darkness came that light. It's like, um, Leonard Cohen's, there's a crack in everything and that's where the light comes in. Exactly. So, right. yeah, that, that makes sense from that viewpoint. Yeah, and we always talk about this um, idea of, of hidden in plain sight. Right? When the room is light, everything just seems light. We can't differentiate light from darkness when we're in the light room. But if we shut the, the overhead, the fluorescence off, and we just have a lamp, right? then we see the light in the darkness. You know, it's, it's like black and white films. If I love the older black and white films because the use of shadow and light, it's so much more interesting and more artistic. Mm. Um, even the way they, they shine on a face or on a figure, it's it's really terrific. And 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 the various shades of gray and the differences, um, there's a lot to be said for that. So I think that's also the whole idea of dark and light, shadow and light. Yeah, and that actually makes me think of um, the teaching about white fire on black fire, right? That the, there's a teaching that says the Torah is white fire on black fire. And that the letters on the, the, the ink that's written on the parchment is actually the negative space rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that in the white fire is where we find the white space, the white parchment between the letters is where we find the interpretation. It's where we find ourselves. It's where we find our stories. And that's why when we read the Torah every year over again, right, we get back to we get back to the beginning. We're reading the same black text, but it's a white mm -hmm. fire that's giving it the depth and the story and the interpretation for us. And so it's interesting when you connect that to the white and black, black and white films. There was, um, I remember seeing an exhibit of an Israeli artist in the museum in Tel Aviv, and he did everything in terms of negative space. He would put out sand mm. and then capture the moment that what one exhibit was a wedding. So he had like had everybody in there like a wedding and like a chupan people standing there. And then what you saw was the, the marks in the sand. So it was, it was, I think all about memory. It was um, the impression that the, the negative space mm. It's very interesting. And, and really, um, I'm trying to think of the word in English, mitragesh, very um, emotional, very, very feeling. Nice, thank you. Jana, hi, I know another Jana Warner from Los Angeles. Oh, really? <laughs> you don't look like her. All right, so <laughs> welcome. Would you read us this DC paragraph from Estelle Frankel, please? If we can find a way to hold and embrace our pain gently, recognizing that brokenness is simply part of the human condition, then we may begin to feel empathetically connected to all other beings. This is the broken heart that makes us whole. Jewish spiritual healing is essentially about breaking out of the narrow prison of our own personal heartbreak to enter the heavenly palace of compassion and connection. It is about how the human heart can be broken open so that the veils that keep us separate from one another and our connection with the divine can be removed. The truth is it's all about connection. Whether we bear our soul before the divine or our personal pain becomes a point of connection with others, when we feel part of a greater whole, we experience a sense of joy and well-being. When we feel disconnected from ourselves and others and separate from the whole, what in religious terms we refer to as God, we suffer. The Hebrew word for oneness, ehad, I guess. 
Hebrew, um, comes from the same root as the word for joy, chivda, or we experience joy when we feel a sense of oneness and connectedness. This is the central aim of all Jewish spiritual healing to restore a sense of unity, joy, and connectedness in a world in which brokenness seems inevitable. Thank you. Okay, so following this thread, right? Darkness came before light. The light emerges from the darkness. The shattered tablets whose edges soften and we carry their dust and we carry the pieces with us as we journey through the desert. It's the idea that we're all a little bit broken. We don't have to be perfect. We're not expected to be perfect. You know, and there's um, the idea that we are, we're all pieces in one another's puzzle. That when we're showing up, the 18 of us have never been together in one space together ever in this universe, right? But this moment, each of you are necessary to be here. So it's all about connection. When we're connected with other people, we're part of a greater whole, she says. Right? When we're disconnected from ourselves and separate from others, that's when we suffer. So how do we begin to bring light into the darkness? How do we begin to see the light in the brokenness that's around us? What's coming up for you as we head into this first night of Hanukkah? For me personally, there's, I'm thinking about two other things that I've learned about actually that connect to this. This is maybe all a little esoteric, but one is the, I learned recently that the Camus definition of freedom is nothing but a chance to be better is his definition. So essentially like your ability to grow, improve, make choices that evolve and progress your life and the life of others. So it's the opportunity to do that. Um, and then I heard the, I think she's the head rabbi of France, like the rabbi emeritus of France or whatever her title is. And she was saying how the word for freedom in Hebrew is derivative of the same word as void. Um, and just basically this idea that freedom is the opportunity to progress and continue forward, even when it seems sort of impossible or broken, or like, like it, something needs to be fixed before you can proceed. But like in my mind, those two, that passage that we just read, this definition of freedom and this and this sort of concept of imperfection or void is just basically that in order to bring light, it's just really a matter of personal choices and decision and sort of the power of choice, the power to sort of take control of the circumstance and your own um, and your own capacities to like make the choice to make things better and, and just sort of overall the power of choice is like the power to illuminate if you make good choices. Nice. Thank you. And reflecting back the light we see in others, right. To yeah. um, manifest that light in the world. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Connectedness that the, like you say, you see the light in others, the, even like the, the, um, like we're having a few places. I'm in Toronto. We have a few places where Chabad is hosting um, a large Hanukkah menorah and, and lighting for the public. And that bringing people together, you know, is something very, very joyful. And even the knowledge that, you know, while I'm lighting my candles, uh, people throughout this Eastern Standard Time are lighting their candles. And then the next, you know, people will be lighting their candles. And, um, 
that's how you spread the joy and also the comfort that you get from people being together. I I got a email from my cousin in Israel and she's just talking about how people are coming together, hosting people who have been evacuated, um, groups of people whose kids are in the IDF have formed groups, you know, to come together and, and share emotions and, that's what it is to be human, just to share and connect. Yeah, right. And Jewish tradition teaches us about being in community, right? We're not meant to sit alone on a mountaintop having our experiences, right? We're meant to be with other people. That's how we heal. That's how we find wholeness. So what else is coming up for y'all based on these texts and the idea of coming from the darkness to find the light, coming from the brokenness to find the wholeness? What's showing up for you? I keep thinking of Vincent van Gogh. Mm, okay. His choice to put a vibrant yellow next to a, a purple or a dark blue and how that makes his, makes his paintings so evocative and strong and also disturbing. And that he was a very disturbed person, but he brought so much joy and so much connectedness for those of us who admire his work. Interesting. So, right. So even through art, we can experience this. What other questions, comments, reflections do you have as we head? We're, I know, personally coming now two months into this war in Israel. Today is two year, two months. It's December 7th. Um the moments of hope and light, hopelessness and dark, brokenness, healing, the ways people are finding connection and creating light. I think we're carrying that with us into this first night of Hanukkah. I feel that. And as we are parts of these vessels that have shattered and the light is out there waiting for us to bring it back together, what can our role be? What's our imperative as we head into this week of miracles. I'm thinking of um, Peter Paul and Mary's song, Don't Let the Light Go Out. You know, right. How important it is for everyone to light. I remember when the, when the um, war started and we were, uh, we were told, you know, to light Shabbos candles and to really go out there and do mitzvot to make the world a, a better place and a brighter place. And um, I think it's our imperative to light tonight and every night and um, just to continue to bring that into the world. Nice. Thank you. Right, what else? I think it's important to have gratitude. I think um, that's the way we've done it a lot in my family. Um, is every Shabbos we would go around the table and say what we were grateful for that week. And no matter how bad of a week it was, we always find something that we were grateful for. And um, I think that helps to find light in the darkness. Community, be there for each other. As Jews, go to, go to Hanukkah programs, go to shul, invite people over for Shabbat. Um, just the warmth that we can give each other and the light that mm. we spread by being 
part of a community and helping each other. In our foundational Kabbalah classes, um, in one of the weeks we talk specifically about light and darkness, and we talk about Joseph, right? Joseph, we read about Joseph in this time of year in the Parsha, in the Torah portion. And he was, in, he had to go into the darkness to come back into the light, right? And it's only interesting, it's particularly interesting in this month of that we celebrate Hanukkah, right? It's the darkest time of year. It's when we have to work the hardest to manifest this light, to bring that light back out. So it's a, it's a good teaching where we're looking at light, gratitude, community, warmth, right? That we should find ways to come together like this, um, express our gratitude, our care for the people that we know and for the people we don't know, right? the people that aren't in our immediate circles um, and find ways to spread warmth and light um, this time of year. So thank you all for being here. I'm going to pass it back to Alex. And, um, that, you know, one of the traditions in, in yoga class, you say namaste, right? That the light in me sees the light in you. So namaste, um, hug samaya, happy Hanukkah. Uh, thank you for being here. And back to you, Alex. Thank you so much, Melanie. And thank you all for joining us and learning with us today. I want to wish you all a very happy Hanukkah. And um, we actually have a great Hanukkah program coming up next week. Um, we will be hosting Rabbanit Leah Sarna on um, December 14th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time for her virtual event. Uh, but what if I love the Greeks? Hanukkah for philosophy. So we hope you can all join us for that as well. And uh, have a very happy Hanukkah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.